Perfect. Okay, guys, give me one second. I'm going to try to post this link on Patreon, and I will be right back. Okay, uh, there we go. Excellent. Thank God. I have been, sorry about the delay, folks. Sorry about the delay. I have been trying to get this working for the past 20 minutes, so I'm going to give everybody just a couple of minutes to get here. <clears throat> Hi, guys. Hi. Sorry about the delay. Hey, all right. Finally, people are showing up. Uh, for some reason, I was having a an incredibly difficult time getting this to work tonight. I've been sitting here for the past 20 minutes trying over and over, and I started to think we weren't going to be able to do it, but it's working, thankfully. Very good, very good. No, I'm not at the new place yet, Solar Plutonian. Uh, the reason it looks different right now is because you can see behind me my cabinet is gone. Uh, and that's because I am not going to be able to take it to the new place. It's too big and I won't be needing it. So I uh, gave it to someone today. They took it away. It's gone to a new home. Uh, my last day here, You can. this place feels very empty now. We've been packing up and uh, getting everything ready to go and taking all the art off of the walls. So it's got that weird kind of echoey type feeling like new places have. Uh, but I will be here for a few more days until the 23rd. And then we will be going to the new place. You'll know when I'm at the new place because as soon as the screen opens up, uh, one of the things that we've been doing over the past few days is having it painted and you will see a very dark red background behind me whenever the um, screen opens. Yeah. Hi, guys. It's good to see you all showing up. Uh, so the thing that I wanted to talk to you about tonight is the Nephilim. 
if you're familiar with the Bible or if you and I'm going to cover the comments up real quick. I have I'm going to be using my phone. I've made a lot of notes and still I am not sure that I'm going to be able to do this topic justice. So this is one of those subjects that uh, I was absolutely obsessed with for a long time, like getting to the bottom of and finding out exactly what these stories were about and what they meant. And you may wonder, what do the Nephilim even have to do with magic? And the answer to that is, they are the source that we get magic from. They are where, according to when you're going by the biblical stories, when you're going by the Sumerian tablets, when you're going by the history of magic itself that is passed along through lineages, uh, the Nephilim are very, very deeply intertwined with the history of magic. And I don't mean, you know, it's become really popular now because of like the, the alien shows and, and things like that, uh, where they say that, you know, mankind got all of this technology and information and all of this sort of stuff from uh, aliens or um, there's also another group of people who and, and here's the thing. When you're reading the Bible you're not going to be able to make heads or tails of it unless you have the key that enables you to unlock all of these stories. And that key is this. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes and, just, and we're going to talk about exactly what this is and how this is the key to everything. But I wanted to give you uh, just a brief um synopsis of uh, what the Nephilim are, sort of what they're not, and where all of this stuff kind of originated at, all of the rumors and things. Like, for example, uh, you know, you hear all the stuff about giants. You know, that's become one of those things that people love. It's tremendously popular that the Nephilim were giants. And that came about whenever the Aramaic was translated into Greek, and then the Greek was translated into English, they translated the word Nephilim into giants. And you can kind of understand the mistake there. Once you know the whole story, you can understand why they would do that. However, it would be more accurate like the word as the fallen. Uh, at some points in the Bible, it's even it could be translated much more accurately as the fallen warriors. And they are the crux of what the Bible is about. You know, you most people today, whenever you think of the Bible, you're thinking of stories of like Jesus or uh, Judaism and all of that sort of stuff. But it, it's it's like really taken out of context. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you know about the Nephilim and the role that they play in the Bible and where we come about this, this idea that they're fallen angels. So I'm going to tell you about some scriptures first off. 
the the very first time that they occur in the Bible, the very first time they're mentioned is in Genesis. And it happens right before the story of Noah's Ark and the flood, the deluge that wipes the earth clean, almost destroys everybody, all of that sort of stuff. That's whenever you find them for the very first time. And what it says is the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in, came in unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The same were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. And that's all it says about them. But there, there's the beginning of why people started saying that the Nephilim were the offspring of fallen angels. Because it says uh, they are the sons of God and they came, came in unto the daughters of men. So some people take that as meaning literal angels, literal angels came down from the sky and began having sex with human women. And that's one of those things that, you know, I would like to believe that we've reached a stage in our development as, you know, conscious, intellectual beings that we don't subscribe to myths like that anymore. Really, it's of the same vein as like people who take the Bible extremely literally to the point that like when they're reading the book of Genesis, they read it as a literal talking snake led to mankind or led to the world being in the state that it's in today. You know, you would like to believe that people don't really accept that a talking snake led to all the misery in the world. You know, it's it's like people will say, I used to hear guys argue about this in prison. You would hear guys say, you know, like the 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 saved people, the fundamentalists, they would say, you know, I don't believe that humanity evolved from from monkeys or apes. And the other guys would counter, oh, but you believe in a talking snake. You know, it's like neither of the, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's symbolic is what it is. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but the second time that the Nephilim are in the Bible, and this is part of where the giants thing comes from, the second time that they're mentioned is in the book of Numbers. And this is when the Israelites are marching through the desert looking for the promised land. And they're basically going around and around and around in a circle. Uh, they march for 40 years through a patch of land that's basically the size of New Jersey. That's how you know they were going around and around in a circle. But at one point, uh, 12 spies get sent out. And you'll find the number 12 appearing in the Bible over and over and over. All the number 12 represents is uh, the 12 constellations of the Zodiac. Um, anytime you see the number 12, that's what it's talking about, the 12 constellations. But 12 spies get sent out to uh, go search, go, go and look at this one piece of land and see what's going on there. And whenever the spies come back, what they tell Moses is, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So that's part of where you get the, the giants thing is because he's saying 
to them, we were basically grasshoppers. To them, we are insects. To them, we are beneath their notice. And since they saw us that way, we saw ourselves that way. So in addition to just to get off the subject for one second, in addition to this being where the Nephilim are mentioned, this is also kind of a lesson in and of itself. And it, it, it involves how the way you see yourself, the way you look at yourself, the way you speak about yourself is going to dictate to at least some degree, sometimes a very large degree, how the rest of the world is going to see you, how the rest of the world is going to view you, think of you, all of those sorts of things. If you think of yourself as insignificant, then chances are the rest of the world is going to think of you as insignificant. If you think of yourself as significant, then you're going to carry yourself in a different way. And when you carry yourself in a different way, it causes the rest of the world to view you in a different way. So that's a little like mini lesson about magic in there. Uh, but we not only do they say uh, that they viewed them as grasshoppers, but at one point they talk about the Nephilim or the land where they are. And they say it is a land that eats its inhabitants. Uh what that's talking about is, well, actually, I'm not going to talk about that yet. We'll get to that in just a second. I don't want to skip ahead. Uh, in Ezekiel, they talk about them. They say that they're ancient warriors that are trapped in the underworld, uh, that not only are they connected with the underworld, but that they originated from Earth, from the Earth, and that they end up closed up in the Earth. So it doesn't say that they you know, came from other planets or anything like that. It says they came from the earth and that they are closed up in the earth. What that means is keep in mind that the ancient Sumerian artifacts, relics, most of that stuff was not discovered until the 1930s. They were in the earth. They were completely covered up. They were hid from the view of humanity. We had not unearthed that yet. This is talking about a time whenever they were starting to be forgotten. Keep in mind that by the time the Hebrews come along, by the time the Old Testament is being written, ancient Sumer was already considered, you know, so far back in time that they could barely even remember most of what it was about. You know, the only thing left at that point were remnants, like little tribes that they would come across in the desert that were like descendants of these ancient Sumerian kings. To the ancient Hebrew people, these Sumerians were already ancient. Um, so a lot of that about them being closed up in the earth, that's just about basically them being forgotten, you know, the sands of time covering them up. Uh, well, then you get to the most interesting part of the Bible, or this is actually not in the Bible, it's considered like uh, deuterocanical, or, you know, it was taken out at one point, it's the book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, it says, and when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, let us select for ourselves wise, wives from the progency of men and let us beget children. So it's inferred in some way that the sons of God 
are superhuman figures. We get that part. They're superhuman figures that make other people view themselves as insignificant in some way. Um, also, you'll hear them called watchers in the book of Enoch. Well, in the original Aramaic, that word watcher that they translated into watcher meant those who are awake. That's what it, what it was. But I'm going to show you a couple of things in just a second and how this is tied into the... Uh, I'll be, well, let me show you something first, if you can see this. You know, this is a really, really popular, well-known picture. I'm trying to tilt it down so that you don't get blinded by the glare. This is Marduk and Tiamat, an ancient Sumerian god. And what Tiamat represents is the primordial chaos that existed before humanity began to civilize the world. A lot of times it was also symbolized by a lion. And I'm trying to do justice to this, but it's really, really hard because there is so much information here to cover and so many different offshoots, ways to go, all of that, that it's really, really hard to make it all concise. But I'm going to do my best. Basically, you'll hear Nimrod in the Bible referred to as one of the first kings of what the Bible calls Shinar. Shinar is the biblical name for Sumer, for Sumeria. That's what they call it in the Bible. So Nimrod comes from Shinar. Nimrod is a Sumerian king. They talk about Nimrod being a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's the way they describe him. The name Nimrod actually means mighty hunter. A lot of the names in the Bible, a huge part of how you understand what the Bible is talking about is by looking up what everyone's name means. That will give you tremendous insight in and of itself when you start looking at what people's name means in the Bible. So Nimrod is a mighty hunter. That is not a compliment. It sounds like a good thing. You know, if you say, oh, somebody's a mighty hunter, basically the way what that what that's trying to say in very old, archaic language is that he is doing something in the face of God, like defiantly, you know, aggressively. And that's part of what this picture is about. What he's doing is conquering. He is establishing cities. And you'll find in these photos, I'm going to show you another one. This is one of my favorite photos of the Nephilim. You can see this. You see that? I'm trying to get the reflection off. So this is Ashurbanipal, King Ashurbanipal of Assyria, fighting with a lion. Again, a mighty hunter. Well, this... One of the reasons that you find this this lion over and over in all of these stories is because at the time of ancient Sumer, that was a very, very real threat. There was a very, very real chance that you could get eaten by a lion in your normal daily life. These mighty hunters were people who were 
the way they're conquering is by providing safety for other people. You know, they kill these lions, they establish these cities so that people don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. They don't have to worry about getting eaten by a lion in the middle of the night, any of that sort of stuff. They are providing people with safety. You'll hear people say sometimes also, they'll say it doesn't make sense. Like if God knew that there were, that these all this stuff was going to happen that he was going to try to get rid of later with the deluge, the flood, all of this sort of stuff. Why would he allow this to happen? And you'll hear people say, oh, well, it was part of his plan. And people will say, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, if he knew that there was going to be this fall, if, if somebody was going to fall, if there was going to be this fall from grace, why would he do that? Well, the answer is because we needed it humanity would not be in the place that we are today if that fall had not occurred. If we did not have those mighty hunters before the Lord to basically do like Marduk is doing to Tiamat, slaying that primordial chaos, building those first cities, then we would not live in the civilization and the society that we live in today. The thing is, after that foundation was laid, that way of living became obsolete. You were not supposed to be that going forth to conquer anymore. That's not what was supposed to happen. That's the whole thing about the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that already happened. The meek inherited the earth. We don't have mighty hunters anymore. The mighty hunters before the Lord, these these kingly sons of God, these slayers that go forth and do these huge things uh, to establish civilization. Now, you know, there's nothing left to conquer. We're at, the world is constantly at war with each other, but we've laid the foundation of civilization. So this is why they were trying to transfer from that old way of life, that old polytheistic religion into something new. Take, you know, look at things like first you look at the difference in this, which is considered, this is considered holy, sacred in ancient Sumer. This is what you wanted to see. This is what gave you confidence. This is what inspired faith in you, in the people who are going to take care of you. Now, I'm going to show you something hanging above my bed. Give me one second. Now, you can see it. Can you see that? That is Daniel in the lion's den. You see the difference in what's going on in these two photos? In one of these photos, in one of these portrayals, you have a man literally fighting the lion, wrestling with it, trying to drive a sword through it. In the other one, you have a man surrounded by lions, and he's not even looking at them, not even paying attention to them, yet he still conquers them. He still survives without any violence. The Nephilim are also tied into what Jesus says in the New Testament when he says, up until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent have taken it by force, meaning that violent people had taken heaven. I'm going to show you a couple of things before we get into what the Nephilim actually are. 
this this subject is one of the things that for a while it was like I could not let go of it. Like I was obsessed with it. I thought of it day and night. Most people, when they're practicing magic, it doesn't occur to them for sometimes several years to ask, where did this all come from? Because when you're learning these rituals, you know, all these rituals that are based on the stars and and they're so precise, you start to realize that the narrative that we've been taught about magic, how it's something that just slowly developed over time, that that's not true. You know, that that we had to have gotten this from somewhere. You know, it, it just makes too much. It's just put together in a flawless way. And you start to try to figure out where did we get it from? And then the only thing you come across in the Bible is that we get it from these sons of God. That's the thing that the sons of God and the Nephilim do in the Old Testament. They teach magic to humanity. So when I when I was obsessed with this, this is part of the reason that I started going to the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I went every single day and I would try to learn every single thing I could about everything to do with ancient Sumer, because that was what and part of how you figure this stuff out is through the attaining knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. Whenever you do that, it will start feeding you some of this information. It will start giving you things that won't make a lot of sense, but downloads is what I used to call them. You will start receiving downloads from establishing this link to the HGA. So I knew just from that that the origins of all this somehow, some way, had something to do with ancient Sumer. So I started going to the Met, and it eventually ended up with me doing tours at the Met. But one of the things I found, and I'm going to show you another picture here, that was, uh, I can't describe the hold that it had on me. Like the amount of awe, like I would go and stare at this thing for hours sometimes, just trying to figure all this out. This is a Nephilim. This is one of the oldest pieces of art, not just in the Met, but in the entire world. And again, whenever you're looking at this, unless you know, you know, about like what the Lamassu represents, how it's the constellations of the Zodiac, all these sorts of things, you don't even realize what you're really looking at here. You know, all of the animal characteristics that he has, like these are wings. These are the wings of the bird on his back. He's wearing horns. He is clothed in the constellations. Now, the thing about this, whenever I first saw this, there's a plaque next to this thing that says this was found in in a temple in ancient Sumer, but it was in such... It was in a a position, a placement, and everything that was around it made it impossible to tell if this was a demon or a hero. Those were the two words they used, either a demon or a hero. Well, when you're talking about the Nephilim in the Bible, it calls them uh, the mighty men of old, the men of renown, which means people knew who they were. They were known throughout the world. 
but it doesn't tell you if they were known for something good or something bad. All we know is that they filled people with awe and sometimes even terror, which is what Melum, you know, when we were talking about this energy that is at the core of all these ancient Sumerian rituals, as well as at the core of modern day ceremonial magic, that's why they call Melum a fearsome radiance, that whoever is in the presence of it will feel some sort of awe. So I want to read you a couple of things also. So what we've got so far, uh, we've got, my brain went blank. Oh, sons of God, daughters of men. Keep in mind that, let me find it again. What did I do with it? I've got so many papers here just because there's so much stuff I want to cover. And I realize I'm not doing a very good job of it just because it's such a huge subject. But and it's something that I am incredibly passionate about. Um, this symbol here. For those who've been following me on like social media, you see, you know that I recently was selling pendants with this symbol on them. It's called the Dinjir in Sumerian. Well, in ancient Sumer, this symbol means uh, divinity. Like anytime you see any of the gods, whether it be Enlil, whether it be Inki, whether it be Inanna, whether it be Anu, whoever it is, Ninhursag, uh, Nurgle, any of these gods, this is the first character in their name. It means God. It also meant royalty. All of the king's names, this would also be the first symbol in their names. So, for example, one of the things at the Met are actually bricks from Babylon. Like, not recreations, but the actual bricks from Babylon. And you will see cuneiform stamped into them. This cuneiform repeated over and over and over throughout the entire city says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, guardian of the temple. And this is the first symbol in Nebuchadnezzar's name. Well, not only does this mean divinity, and not only does it mean royalty, but it also means star, like the stars in the nighttime sky. This is the symbol for star. So the same symbol means star. It means royalty, and it means divinity. So keep in mind also that in the Bible, the words angel and star are synonymous. It uses them interchangeably. As a matter of fact, it uses them in such an interchangeable way that a lot of times when we read one, we automatically see the other. So, for example, when it's talking about the dragon, it says that the dragon cast one third of the stars from heaven. We understand that in modern terms. We think it's the devil, which it's not. The dragon that they're talking about is the constellation of Draco, Draconis, which at, was the star that would have been like directly up above the, the Earth's pole at the time that the ancient Sumerians were uh, 
predominant when polytheism was ruling the world. So, but whenever you read that, people read that as meaning that it's a third of the angels of heaven. A third of the angels in heaven get cast down with the devil. So you see how star and angel are synonymous. And it's over and over and over throughout the Bible. You'll find it on a bunch of different scriptures. This is where this is what they're trying to describe. This is the reason that angel and star are synonymous because you know you'll hear people say that the Bible plagiarized all of these old Sumerian stories. You know, like the story of Noah and the Ark comes from uh, the story of there was a, um, another man in ancient Sumer that went through the same thing. I'm trying to think of his name. They don't call him Noah. They call him by a different name, but he builds an ark and survives and all. What the ark symbolizes is him preserving these teachings. You know, when it's talking about um, how he brings these animals onto the ship in order to save them, you know, once again, we're not talking about a literal thing. We're not talking about, you know, people who believe in a talking snake. We're not talking about... Uh, you know, literal angels coming down out of the sky and having sex with women. We're not talking about a literal flood of water. We're not talking about literal animals. Building the ark and preserving all of these animals, those animals, again, represent the constellations of the zodiac. You know, you've got eagles and lions and bulls and all those sorts of things. What that story is about is a man who is trying to preserve these teachings and carry them forward into new generations so that they would survive time, so that people in future civilizations could have access to this information and use it to do what? Accomplish the great work to activate all levels and layers of your soul. That was the point of all of this stuff. So I'm going to read you, and, and this isn't just my interpretation. This is something that you have to dig to find. And most people uh, don't want to. You know, they get excited about thinking it's aliens or it's, you know, literal angels or, or this sort of stuff. But if you really want to find this stuff, you can find it. So give me just a second. I'm looking for some things. Um, see which one to read to you first. Give me one second, guys. Okay, here's a good one. Uh, Orthodox Judaism has taken a stance against the idea that Genesis 6 refers to angels or that angels could intermarry with men. Simon Bar Yochai, and I'm probably just slaughtering his name uh, just because I don't know how to pronounce it, pronounced a curse on anyone teaching this idea. Rashi and Nakamandis followed this. Pseudophilo may also imply that the sons of God were human. Consequently, most Jewish commentaries and translations describe the Nephilim as being from the offspring of sons of nobles rather than from sons of God or sons of angels. This is also the rendering suggested in another Jewish writing, which I can't pronounce, who reads it as the sons of the rulers or the sons of the judges. 
So you're talking about the offspring of kings. You're talking about the offspring of rulers. You're talking about the offspring of judges. Remember, again, this represents both divinity, kingship, and star. The Bible, it's not that it plagiarized a bunch of these old stories and rewrote them and just changed the name. The Bible was the next chapter of these ancient Sumerian stories. It was a way to once again try to preserve them and carry them forward into future times, future civilizations, future generations. And that's what the entire Bible is about. When By the time you get to the book of Daniel, and you know, the Bible calls Daniel the, and I'm going to shut up in a second and, and start reading you guys questions, and we'll talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, whatever questions you have, all of that. I'm just going to tell you one more thing really quick about the book of Daniel. And this is something that I would like to go in uh, more in depth at some point. You know, people will try to tell you that um, magic is unbiblical or that it's against the Bible. That's not what the Bible tells you. As a matter of fact, in the book of Daniel, it says that Daniel is not only a magician, he is the master of magicians. And I'll tell you something else. Daniel is a prophet. Ezekiel is a prophet. Remember Crowley, Aleister Crowley? He called himself a prophet. He said he is a prophet of the new eon. That doesn't mean what most people think it means. Now, when we hear the word prophet, most people think it means it's someone who sees the future. That's not what it is. As a matter of fact, when I first started learning some of the higher levels of magic, one of the things you come across in like the Golden Dawn material that's given to you is that by the time you finish this work, you will be the equivalent of what the Old Testament calls a prophet. A prophet isn't someone who sees the future. A prophet is someone who understands the past. That's what it comes down to. Remember when Crowley was saying that it was his job to reconstruct the Sumerian tradition, that he couldn't really do it just because he didn't have that much, you know, the tablets hadn't been translated or any of that yet. The book of Daniel is also about magic. Now, I'm going to show you another picture here. Let me tell you a, a quick story first, really what the, the book of Daniel is about. Daniel, as a very young boy, is gather, gathered up by the king, by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sends Daniel and all of these other young boys off to be trained by what the Bible calls the Chaldeans and the Sumerians. It, he's trained in, let me see, I may even have, I may even have what it says about him. Give me one second really quick. This is something I should have had ready. Let me see, I might not have it ready. Oh, I do have also a few things if you want to hear it about stars and angels being synonymous. Uh, like, for example, in the book of Judges, it says the stars fought from heaven. 
from their courses, they fought against Sisera. In the book of Job, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, in Isaiah, it says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Um, there's another one that says, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. You can find the angels and stars, you know, them being synonymous all throughout the Bible. But I'm looking for something in particular about Daniel, if I can find it. And if I can't find it, I won't hold us up forever. Oh, here we go. Um, so let's see. It says, uh, because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen entered the banqueting hall. The queen said, O king, may you live on forever. Do not let your thoughts terrify you, nor let your face turn pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of holy gods. In the days of your father, enlightenment and insight and wisdom, like the wisdom of gods, were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him as chief of the magic practicing priests, conjurers, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Astrologers, Your father did this, O king. For Daniel, whom the king named Balthazar, had an extraordinary spirit and knowledge and insight to interpret dreams, to explain riddles, and to solve knotty problems. So they're talking about Daniel being trained as the greatest magician of all time. So when Daniel gets called before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has been having a dream. He doesn't know what this dream means. All he knows, he can't even remember this dream. All he knows that when he wakes up in the middle of the night, he is terrified, but he can't even remember what the dream is, what he's terrified of. So he calls Daniel in and says, not only do you have to tell me what my dream means, but you have to tell me what I dreamed. It says that Daniel is able to do this because he had the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar did. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you dreamed of a statue. Here's that statue. This is the statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel tells him this statue had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver. It had a belly and thighs of bronze. No, what was it? The belly of bronze? This is bronze. It had, uh, yeah, thighs of iron and calves of, no, yeah, the thighs. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit mixed up. Basically what this represents, I'm going to break it down real quick so I don't mangle it. This is Babylon. The gold head is Babylon. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the golden head of the statue. God has given you this kingdom to rule. Babylon inherited the entire Sumerian system of magic whole. This is why the Babylonians uh, still wrote in cuneiform. You can follow the course that magic takes through the history of the world with cuneiform. In the beginning, it was always passed in that language. 
Later, it would be broken down and it would start to disintegrate and start to go into other languages. But this is Babylon. This is where magic was still pure. From Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Now, well, I won't get into all of it. It goes into Nebuchadnezzar's son and all this. But from Babylon, the empire that conquered Babylon and inherited magic from them is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the chest and arms, the silver. It gets diluted a little bit. It's not gold anymore. It's silver now. After the Persians come ancient Greece, Alexander the Great, all of those guys. And once again, in all of these cultures, all of these kings were seen as divine figures. Somebody's asking, does this statue exist today? No, it never existed. This was just in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in, in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But we go from Greece to Rome. Rome is the next phase of history that, you know, the Romans worshiped the Greeks. All of, the, all of Roman philosophy, Roman fashion, Roman, you know, religious symbolism, they inherited all of that from the ancient Greeks. There is like Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel says, is it Ezekiel? No, it's Ephesians, where they say there is nothing new under the sun. That's what they're talking about. None of these religions are anything new. It's the same thing being passed down just in slightly different language and becoming slightly degraded over time. So you get to the Roman Empire, which is the iron calves of the statue. Yeah, that's what it says. Yeah, it says belly and thighs of brass, then legs of iron, and that's the Roman Empire. And then when you get to the feet, it says the feet are made of a mixture of iron and clay. This is the least valuable part of the statue. You know, this is the part that is the weakest. Clay is, is, is the, you know, there's no, it can't hold up to anything. It's not as strong as iron. It's not as strong as bronze, not as strong, not as valuable as silver, not as pure and sought after as gold. By the time you get to the feet, uh, the feet is modern times, by the way. And, and another thing that you'll find kind of amazing is the Roman Empire is the calves, the feet. After the Roman Empire broke up, the Roman Empire broke up into 10 parts. How many toes are on the feet? 10. So at one time, also, yes, Levi says Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is where it says there is nothing new under the sun. Exactly. So where was I going? My, my mind just went blank for a second. Oh, so by the time you get to the feet, when it's been diluted, degraded, it's not as valuable, it's not as strong, that's the state of magic in the world today. And this is also what they go into in the book of Revelations when it talks about the four living creatures, which are, you know, the Lamasu, the lion, the bull, the man, the eagle, the four fixed signs of the zodiac it says that they stand before the throne of god weeping and saying who can read the scrolls no one can be found who can read the scrolls what that means is we will enter a time in the world's history when nobody knows any of this stuff anymore it's been completely forgotten 
And whenever that happens, that's when there will be this rebirth and all of this information will come back out into the world and it will be known again. This is why they say in the last days, it shall be as it was in the beginning. The last days shall be as the first. It's because finally this information will start to be made known to the world again. And we will see the history of human civilization, of magic, of all of that stuff and how tightly intertwined it is. So I'm not going to keep going on and on about this. Just give me one second and see if there's anything else I need to read to you. Um, let me see. Oh, uh, another, just another little thing says, according to Jonathan Bendove of the University of Haifa, and I may be mangling these names, the myth of the Watchers began in Lebanon when Aramaic writers tried to interpret the imagery on Mesopotamian stone monuments without being able to read the Akkadian texts. Uh, and it talks about the Apkalu, the Apkalu in Sumerian, uh, literature, there are seven Apkalu who give this information to the ancient Sumerians. Um, those, those seven, again, you'll find that mentioned all through the Bible. You'll see seven candlesticks and seven churches and seven this and seven, like someone has seven stars in their hand. All of those seven, that represents the classic planets, the sun, the moon, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, all of those planets that we're still working with today in magic. That's what the seven is. What this is essentially telling you is that the way that magic came about, the way all of these rituals, rituals were constructed based on the stars, is by pre-Sumerian kings, pre-Sumerian tribal warlords who studied the stars and used them for navigation purposes. Because, you know, we know that the ancient Sumerians knew about the procession of the equinoxes or the procession of the equinox, where the sun, you know, has cycles within cycles. In the year cycle, the uh, the sun moves through the 12 constellations, and it takes it a month to move through each one. Well, also, and this is something that you can only know by studying the stars for 2,000 years or more. Not only does the sun make that cycle, but if you watch the sun for 2,000 years on the equinox, you will also see that the sun is traveling backwards through the zodiac. So that at the spring equinox for 2,000 years at the time of ancient Sumer, it would have risen in the sign of Taurus on the spring equinox for 2,500 years. These people watch the stars for a long, long time to be able to piece all of this stuff together. Oh, one other thing I wanted to read you about what it means, and then I'm going to shut up, uh, about the daughters of men and the sons of God. Give me one second. Let me find that piece. One second, guys. One minute. I read the one about the sons of nobles, sons of... Oh, here we go. 
Some individuals and groups, including St. Augustine, John Christostom, and John Calvin, take the view of Genesis 6-2 that the angels who fathered the Nephilim referred to certain human males from the lineage of Seth who were called sons of God, probably in reference to their prior covenant with Yahweh. According to these sources, these men had begun to pursue bodily interests and so took wives of the daughters of men, those who were descended from Cain or from any people who did not worship God. So basically what that means, the sons of God going down and taking the daughters of men as wives, keep in mind that in the Middle East, especially, and especially in pre-Abrahamic religions like Arabian paganism, like if you were one of these huge rulers, you didn't just have a wife. You kept a harem. They would usually collect women. So that's what they're talking about. They're talking about how basically these men were priests. That's what they were supposed to be. That's what the people who kept this information, who studied this stuff, and who passed this stuff down to future future civilizations, future generations, they were meant, they were supposed to be living their lives dedicated to this, to preserving this. Some of those men took their gaze from what they were supposed to be doing and started focusing on this world, on thinking, I can use what I know. I can use what I do. I can become massively wealthy. I can start collecting women. I can start devouring property and building a bigger and bigger and bigger kingdom, all of this sort of stuff. Basically, they took their sights off of preserving this information. And this is the strange thing, too. There are those. These were not men who were unconscious. These were men who had completed the great work. That's why they were able to do the things that they did, because they had completed the great work. They were awake Remember, watchers means those who were awake. These people had done all of this work. That's what made them so formidable. That's what made them the mighty men of old, the men of renown, because they had become extremely powerful because of this knowledge. But there are some some of them that even though they are awake, they still had the desire and the drive to rule. They wanted to conquer, and they wanted to rule. Yeah, Levi says, get lost in the sauce. Yes, exactly. Uh, Amanda says, what's your opinion about the mentality of the men who did that that were awake? I think it ultimately leads you, and it led them, to misery. It leads you to, uh, yes, oh, Mike S., Mike, you brought up a really great point, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, people don't know that he was worshipped as a god in his lifetime. To this day, you can go to Macedonia and still find the remnants of temples that were built to worship Alexander even while he was still alive. He was viewed as someone who had completed the great work. That's what a god meant in those days. It meant a person who had completed the great work. But back to Amanda's question for one second, the mentality of the men who did that, that were awake, I think that was their purpose. Like I said, it was what they did 
that allowed civilization and humanity to get here to where we are now. You know, they laid the groundwork for us to become what we are. However, anytime you take your gaze off of, and not everybody, not everybody is called to do this. This is not everybody's function. This is not everybody's purpose. You know, not everyone is meant to live their life as a priest. Not everyone is meant to live their lives dedicated to this sort of stuff. That's not everybody's will, to use Crowley's terminology. Some people's will is to have kids. Some people's will is to, you know, go out and travel the world in a band, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but if you don't do what your will is, you're going to tend to be miserable. And I think ultimately that also um, happened to those men. Uh, okay, let's see what you guys are talking about. Oh, uh, Joseph says, I wonder if it was easier to complete the great work back then. Only if you were royalty. Because keep in mind, the only people who could even read back then were royalty. Like people who were born into the absolute highest strata of society. The average person couldn't read, couldn't write. That's where all these stories of gods come from. You know, that's why they, they worshipped things. Magicians do not worship things. Magicians do not worship all of these gods. They know that these are uh, symbolic energies that are to be used to complete the great work, to awaken, to accomplish their will, all of those sort of things. People who couldn't read, people who could not write, people who weren't part of this lineage that had this information given to them, taught to them, which you weren't going to have unless you were of the lineage of royalty. You didn't, there was no way you could complete the great work. No way at all. That's the whole point of Jesus. In the New Testament, what Jesus is doing is making this available to everyone, not just royalty anymore, not just these mighty men of old, not just, uh, how did he describe it? Up until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent have taken it by force. He wanted to make this information available to anyone and everyone. That is the point of Jesus coming along to destroy this old system where if you weren't initiated into one of these royal lineages, there was no way you ever could accomplish the great work. The point of Jesus was to make it available to anyone and everyone. Uh, let me see. Oh, uh, Nick, that's a good question. Nick says, considering your past, how long and even why did you consider picking up a Bible? Oh, Levi. Levi says he made us all kings and priests. That's exactly right. He gave you the ability to become your own priest. You know, that's what attaining knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel, that's what that means. You know, it's the same thing as in the New Testament. They call it the rending of the veil. Like the rending of the veil happened because up until that point, the Ark of the Covenant, which was considered to be the seat of God, where God dwelled, where God existed and lived. The only people who had access to that were royalty and priests. Well, at the time that Christ dies, it says the veil that separated that inner sanctum from the outside world was rendered from, rended from top to bottom 
completely torn open so that it was exposed to the world. The world was suddenly given access to something that up until that point, only priests and royalty had had access to. That's symbolic of him making everyone a priest, making everyone a king. That's exactly what that is. Um, you know, Elizabeth asked a good question, too. She says, was Gutenberg the beginning of this misunderstanding of the biblical information, or were people already taking the Bible literally? I think people were already taking it literally, and I think a lot of people had a vested interest in keeping people taking it literally. You know, they want you they wanted people to not understand the stuff because it allowed them, if you have knowledge that no one else has, then you have power that no one else has. Knowledge, wisdom is ultimately the source of power. Um, yeah, uh, Aiden, Aiden asks another good question. He says, in the Sumerian creation myth, when Marduk is born, it's mentioned that his godhead was doubled. Godhead seems to mean magic elsewhere. Is Marduk an entity we can use in rituals? Completely and absolutely. What I started to do after I had been a lot of, I've never found any books on this stuff, to be honest. I, I really haven't. I have not found a lot of information about this out there. But whenever I started doing the Shem operation and invoking the 72 angels of the Zodiac, and then I started invoking the 72 angels of, uh, or the 72 Goetic entities. What I started to realize and the downloads I started to receive were that um, these things were just other names for things the Sumerians had done. Basically, you were invoking the Sumerian catalog. So whenever you're invoking these main big angels in uh, in magic, you know, like the like Gabriel, Mikael, uh, Haniel, Raziel, uh, Zavkiel, Zadkiel, all of these angels, those are the Sumerian gods. Those are just new names for the Sumerian gods. So Zadkiel is just basically another name for uh, Marduk. So after I realized that, then I started doing all of these rituals uh, exactly the same as I'd always done them, only instead of angels, I started invoking um, the Sumerian gods. You know, like the I would say, before me, Anu. On my right hand, Enlil. On my left hand, Inki. Behind me, Inanna. Above me, uh, Anshar. Below me, Kishar. Um, and just doing it the exact same way, only with the... Yes, uh, Marilyn says it gets almost powerfully scary. That is absolutely true. Uh, my guess says, do you keep your arms out the whole time when you invoke larger amounts of angels? No, uh, it's it's really not necessary. You know, no, you don't have to do that at all. You just, I mean, because a lot of these rituals, when I do them, I'm, they take me three hours and I do them several times a day sometimes. So you can't stand there and hold your arms out for three hours. You know, you just stand however you're comfortable. Um what was it? Oh, but 
I don't think you're going to get the same effect from invoking the Sumerian gods as you will if you go through the angelic hierarchy first, because all of these things represent aspects of you. They seem like outside things, like these angels. When you first start invoking these angels, I mean, at one time I saw, the first time I saw an angel, nobody in the world could have told me that this was not something outside of me. I knew to the core of my being, I'm looking at this thing. This is not something inside me, but it was. I didn't realize that or know that until way later on down the road until I had actually integrated it into myself. And then I realized they were inside me the whole time. The same way with the gods. I think you have to integrate the angels first, and then you can start doing the same thing to the gods because they are massively more powerful. Uh, then once you integrate them, there's really nothing left to integrate. You will get to the point where um, you know they even when you get to the top of the tree of life, when you're invoking Kether, there are even levels above Kether. You can't just automatically start invoking those levels. You have to work your way up to them. You have to integrate everything below them. And then you can eventually even get to the, the level, the veil above Kether, the highest veil above Kether, called the Ein, which means the no thing. You basically invoke the no thing hundreds of times a day until you integrate that as well. And from that point on, there are no angels outside you. There are no gods outside you. There is nothing that is not of you. You are within all things, and all things are within you. Um, one second. Maybe we got time for one or two more questions. See what you guys are talking about. Let me see. One second. You know, I think also something else that I realize a lot of this is jumbled, uh, but I think a lot of times something that would really help with a topic of this magnitude, you know, and, and just because there's so much information and also just because I was so absorbed and, and enthralled with this topic, it meant so much to me for so long that it would be helpful to have someone asking me questions, like doing an interview about it. Uh, it would allow me to focus my thoughts more. Let me see. Yeah. Oh, Joseph, here's a really good question. Joseph Walker says, so churches today basically function as royalty and kings of the past. Absolutely. That's exactly what the Pope is. You know, the Pope was the very last in the line of these people passing along this information. The Catholic Church, all they are doing, there is nothing new under the sun. Remember, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, the Catholic Church was doing, passing along the exact same information as the ancient Sumerians, as the Romans, as the Greeks. It, there was no change. All they were doing is putting it in a slightly 
different terminology, slightly different language, coding it in a different way. Um, you know, for example, that's why the ancient Sumerians, you'll see uh, like the figures that are holding a bag and a pine cone. What they're doing, that bag is filled with holy water. They would dip the pine cone into the holy water. And this is where in modern day paganism, they get the whole thing about inserting the dagger into the chalice. And it represents joining male and female. That's the same thing the ancient Sumerians were symbolizing when they dipped the pine cone into the bucket. You're joining masculine and feminine energies. You are uniting opposites. Uh, and then they would sprinkle, use the pine cone to sprinkle the holy water. That's where the Catholic Church, you know, if you've ever been to a mass, whenever they walk down the aisle and they'll sprinkle holy water on both sides of the congregation, it's all the exact same information. Uh, the Pope was the very last priest king to ever that's ever going to, you know, exert any major influence on the world before we all became our own priests and kings, if that makes sense. Let's see, one second. Oh, the biblical giants. Uh, what, the whole reason they call them giants is not because they're giant in stature. It's because they were enormously powerful. You know, like it describes some of these things as being miles big, you know, like it says that there are a certain amount of time, a certain amount of height. Well, if you break that down, like it would be like they were, you know, miles tall. What that's talking about is areas that they ruled over, like temple spaces. The temple was the middle of the kingdom. So it's not about their actual physical size. It's about the amount of power and authority that they wielded in the world. That's why they called them giants. Uh, Elizabeth says, how do you think Catholicism ended up as it is now? And is there any conscious remnants of it or just traditions that are no longer fully understood? There are people in the Catholic Church who do understand this and who know what it means. You know, like I just said, these figures in the Sumerian carvings, how they're using a pine cone to sprinkle water. The biggest pine cone statue in the world to this day is at the Vatican. There is a giant fountain. The pine cone is like, I can't even remember if it's like 10 feet, 10 feet tall, something like that. But it used to be a fountain. They don't have water running out of it anymore. But it used to be water running over the pine cone. And that was the holy water. You would walk up and touch it and make the sign of the cross. You would bless yourself with the water. They knew very well what they were doing. They did it deliberately and on purpose. All they were doing is carrying on the same information to a new generation. But again, you're talking about people who didn't necessarily want everyone to know this. Okay, guys. Um, yes, with two peacocks. That is right, Vegas. Atrahasis. That's who I was trying to think of a while ago. That is the Sumerian name of Noah. Atrahasis. Yes. Okay, guys, I feel like I'm losing my voice a little bit, and I don't want to keep you on here all night long and bore the hell out of you. Uh, but we have lots more good stuff coming up in the future. 
lots more topics that we're going to go into. Uh, so I'm going to cut this off for right now, just reading what you guys are saying. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, Udnapishtim, that was another word, another phrase for, uh, and in the Sumerian uh, version of that story, he actually uh, achieves immortality. Uh, he is granted immortality for preserving these teachings. Well, what that means, that granting of immortality, is that we would always remember him. We would always remember his name. He would never be forgotten. And because we remember him, whatever name you call him, whether it's Noah, whether it's one of the Sumerian names, whatever it is, uh, he remains part of us. So he did achieve immortality. We can absolutely talk about tarot again, guys. We will do that. All right. I'm going to cut this off so that we don't go all night long. But I just wanted to uh, say again, thank you guys for being with me, for supporting me. And I am looking very much forward to uh, starting our next class on Practical Magic soon, where we're going to go back into directing energy. All right, guys. Love you. And I'll talk to you very soon.